Hey there, and welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today, instead of talking about a featured game that we played tonight, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of games that we played over the weekend. I took a trip up to Portland to see Chris, and we got 11 different games in, different and unique games in. And so we're going to just touch on all of those, give you our thoughts on them, whether they were new games to us or replays, but just just kind of talk about the whole weekend and share it with you. So, Chris, how was the weekend for you? Man, I got to tell you, I, I have so many things to say about this weekend, which we're going to launch into. But just to start out, I've got to say that it was great seeing you. It's always great seeing you. It was great just seeing a friend and hanging out with somebody for, for the first time in a long time. And it was great having just an unadulterated game weekend. I was just telling Adam, I think that you were up to like two o'clock every morning. It was absolutely crazy. How It was like being in college again. So, <laughs> it, so it was it was pretty close to a perfect weekend. That's awesome. I'm ready to get them. Yeah, it was, a, it was a blast. I got on a flight on Friday afternoon. It got delayed by an hour, so it was a slow start. But as soon as I got out there, Chris picked me up at the airport, got to his house, showed me his new beautiful place, and sat outside and chatted for like 10 minutes and then said, let's go inside and start playing some games. So we, we played games almost all weekend. Not only did I get to play with Chris, but I also got to play with his wife, Rachel, who you know I played a few games with in the past, but she was really into some heavier, meatier games that I played with her in the past. So that was fun, just a very competitive, a very tough competition going on there. So that was a blast. And I got to play with Chris's son, Nathan, a little bit. Uh, we played some family weight games and, and had a good time hanging out with him as well. So awesome time, Chris, seeing you uh, for the first time. Well, I saw you, what, uh, back in like January or February, right? When you guys ran through Arizona? Yeah, we had a, that quick visit when we were passing through. That's right, yeah. But before that, you know, it's been quite a while. So great spending a lot of time with you guys. But let's get into the games. That's what people are here to listen to. So, Adam, did, you didn't get to make it out this weekend, but, you know, next time. next time. I we'll didn't. Break. I didn't. But nice job, guys. That sounds awesome, Tim. Nice job getting out there. Chris, nice job healing up. I'm looking forward to gaming with both of you guys as soon as possible. And right the on. only thing that could have actually made the weekend better was if Adam was there. But we're going to remedy that in October, and that is going to be truly epic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we did uh, one of our other co-hosts that joins us once in a while, Steve, who's also my brother, who also plays games with us almost every Monday night. He did get to make it out and play a couple games with us because he lives in the Portland area as well. So we'll talk about a couple of games and the gameplays that we had with him as well, even though he's not on tonight. But hey, let's jump in. So first game we got there and the one game that I told Chris I really wanted to play that he had that I never got to play before was Calico. So Calico is designed by Kevin Russ and was published by AEG with the art by Beth Sobel. So Chris, I'll give a kind of a quick rundown on the on the game, but how many times have you played this game in the past? I've probably played Calico about a dozen times, so it's not something I've played a ton, but I played it enough to be familiar with it. I've played it enough to know what an absolute mind mess it can be when you start puzzling through where to put those tiles. So I had a little experience. I was really interested to hear what you were going to think about it. Before yeah. you go in, Tim, I've heard this game is an absolute brain bender of a game. Despite the cute kittens and little patterns, it's just a melter. How is your brain feeling after playing this game? It was like that. You know, for the weighted game, I actually I really liked it. But let me just tell the listeners a little bit about Calico, talk a little bit about how the game plays really quickly, and then I'll give you my thoughts on it, because I do have a lot to say about this game. So the, essentially, Calico is a tile-laying game, and each player has an individual player board, and the whole goal is to pick up and create matching patterns and color matches on the board. 
each player has a player board and it fits a whole bunch of hex tiles, maybe like 20 hex tiles. And there's three hex tiles already laid into the board that give you what they call designer goals. And so the designer goals tell you what kind of tiles you need to wrap around that specific hex tile. It's usually like a pattern of three three of one color and three of another color, and then three of one pattern and three of another pattern, that type of thing. And then there's also every three colors that you can match together, three of the same color, you'll get a button on them, which are worth points at the end of the game. And if you get one of every color, then you get a special button that's worth an extra three points, but there's only one of those available. And then there's these three cat tiles laid out next to the board, and they each have two of the different patterns tied to them. And they each have different layouts on them. So one of them might have three shapes in a pyramid shape, and then one might have four in a row, and one might have five in a row. But they're for different patterns. So basically, what you're trying to do is follow all of these different goals of putting tiles on your board that match these color sets, pattern sets, and then meet your design goals. The actual turn mechanism is really simple. You have two tiles in your hand at the start of the game. You pick one up from three tiles that are available, and you place one on your map. Really simple, and then the one of the three gets replaced. So you've got a very small market you're buying from every time. And so that's it. The game's really simple. But as Chris mentioned and as Adam has heard, it is a brain burner. There's so many different directions you can go here that trying to wrap your head around what exactly you want to do with one of those three tiles that you've got in your hand. It's, it's a challenge. It's, it's really hard to suss out what direction you should go in. Because if I place one tile to try to meet my design pattern, but I don't get the right matches for that over the course of the game, I may never meet it. And how do I both match the three of the pattern and also three of the color, but they're not exactly the same tiles? There are a lot of interesting, fun decisions here. So that's the general gist of how it plays. Chris, how is this play for you? You've played this a dozen times. This was a three-player game with you and Rachel. Anything that stood out to you here? Well, for one, the pressure was on because you were playing. So I knew I had to bring my A game. This game is consistently fun, so I thought this is a good play. I actually thought I was doing better than I really was, it turns out, because I think I came in last. No, but you took second. You took second. I, oh, yeah, oh Ra- Rachel won on it, but yeah. Hey, good I was last on that one. <laughs> uh, one thing that I actually was pretty successful at, and it's one of the points that I wanted to mention to the listeners, is... The design goals have this one incredibly interesting feature that I appreciate. Each tile has a color and it has a pattern. And a lot of the design goals ask you to do, say for example, three and three. In other words, three tiles of one type on one side of a hex and then three tiles of another type on the other side of the hex. And you can get points for having three colors on one side and then three colors on the other side that are the same. Or you can have the same thing with patterns. Or you can get extra bonus points by doing both, and they don't have to match up. That's the place where my brain just goes into overdrive, and it shuts down, and I I freak out. But trying to get match up these patterns where you're trying to do both of these things, and not necessarily, because it would be impossible to do them with those exact same tiles. So you have to find ways around that. And the fact that you're playing this on such a small play field means every single tile you put down is absolutely critical. And you've got to make sure you're putting down something that's going to give you options if the thing you're shooting for fails, which it may because you don't know that you're going to get the tiles you want. I think to you describe that just scrambled my brain. <laughs> that was crazy intense. Has the brain burn for you, have you been able to figure out that puzzle more the more you played this game? 
a little bit, yeah. I think that it's something that, like any game, you sort of you see the mechanisms and you start getting more accustomed to them. But I don't know that something like this ever gets truly easy. And again, it's because you're competing with each of those tiles for do I want to try to go for a button? Do I want to try to go for a design goal? Or do I want to go for a cat? They're all valid. They all get you points and they can all win you a game. And you don't know what you're going to draw on the next tile. So you're really doing some guesswork and some, some good planning and, and you can maybe win a game. What did you think about that aspect of it, Tim? First of all, I, there's two games that this game reminded me of. Number one was Azul. You know, Azul is another drafting game where you're picking up a tile and you're placing it on your player mat and you're trying to get some matches and there's some restrictions to it and things like that build over the course of the game. So very familiar to me with that. And I'll tell you that my feeling on the first play of Calico is that I think Calico is a more interesting game than Azul. I like Azul a lot. And if I didn't have Azul in my collection or any other games like it, I would be really interested in picking Calico up because I really liked the puzzle. I had a great time playing it. It was easy to teach, easy to play, but a challenge. I really didn't know whether I was making the right decision. It was not deterministic. Like You really had to make choices and play your odds and stuff like that. So had a great time. I think it did a lot of what Azul does, but did it in an even more interesting way. The second game it reminded me of was we played Canvas on my last gaming weekend extravaganza when Adam came out. And I said the challenge with Canvas was that it is a entryweight game, but it was almost too heavy and too thinky to be like to introduce new players too easily. And Calico solved that by the fact that each tile only had two things you had to process with it. So it was a hard decision where to place it, but you knew that it was either the pattern or the color. So are you trying to use that pattern or that color? With Canvas, the problem with it was is that each thing that you were going to pick up on your turn had five different types of symbols that were going to be on that one tile. And then you had to process how is that going to fit in with the other tile that it was being laid on top of. And that was a lot more processing power without a lot more payoff. And so Canvas has its own things going on, especially the production and stuff like that. But out of these two, this is a game that I would probably prefer to go back to frequently from a um, mechanism perspective, and I think it would be easier to get new players to play, but that I'd still really enjoy the puzzle with. So that was my thought. Those were the two games that it reminded me of because they have some similar gameplay and flow and stuff like that. But I thought Calico was the best of the three of them, and for you know a similar weight game, I, I really appreciated it. I'm curious to hear Adam's thought because I think you know you and I are kind of similar, and we're both a little bit more into the ag aggressive types of you know, dudes on a map, in which this is the exact opposite of, because you're on your own player board, the only interaction the players have is by drawing tiles, and you may draw a tile away from somebody else. So I'm curious to hear from you if this is the kind of game that you'd find interesting. Before he does, though, I want to jump in and say that that interaction, though, can be cutthroat, because you can look at the other players' boards, and they, especially as you get later in the game and you can see where people are trying to finish patterns, and you can absolutely mess with people. And even without hurting yourself, because you might benefit from a color that's out there, but you know they need that pattern. And the pattern is the only one that will fit in that space, and there's no other patterns out there. So you take that pattern, and it works for you, and it screws them, and you can just do it every single turn. So there is some decent interaction there. I've heard there Good is point. that kind of that hate drafting aspect, and I absolutely love that aspect of Azul. So I, would, I think I could get down with this game. The puzzle might scramble it, and I might just be horrible at it the first 10 to 20 times. But then that 21st time, that 22nd time, then I'll be right there with you guys. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it was great. So I, we don't probably don't need to spend any more time on it. I would definitely recommend if you're looking for a game at that weight and with a with a really fun puzzle to it, check out Calico. If I didn't already have several games in my collection that kind of did similar things, I would definitely be interested in picking this up. But as is, I I just don't need another one. But it, it's one of my favorites of this style. So really loved it. Hey, Tim, I did want to add one more quick thing about this game, and that is that it has really nice thematics for a small, simple game. And I just found that so neat. So you're placing your, you know, for one, you got your design goals. You know, anybody who's ever done any kind of sewing, quilting, crocheting, any kind of arts crafts, you start with a pattern. You start with an idea, which is, of course, what that is. As you're putting down your colors, then if you get the right colors together, then you get a button in that color. And the one that I personally found to be my favorite and so cute is, I did, and I did not know this, but apparently cats do not see in color. So the cats don't care about your color. They care about the patterns. And it's different patterns that will draw the cats. They'll give you the bonuses for the cats. And just that little bit of theming, I thought, just makes it so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. All right, so the next game that we played this weekend, and we, we kind of picked this because Rachel was going to play another game with us. And her and Chris have been playing a lot of Tapestry and they've been playing a lot of Terraforming Mars. So she said, Tim, pick one of those two games. And I, I picked Tapestry as my first choice here. It was already getting a little bit later, and I thought we could get through that one a little bit quicker than Terraforming Mars. So we pulled out Tapestry with the Plans and Ploys expansion. Tapestries by Jamie Stegmeier and Stonemeyer Games. Chris, you've been playing a lot of this lately. How did this play go for you? I thought it was really good. And part of the reason for that is because adding in the third player makes a huge amount of difference. We've been playing that game a lot, and one thing that I've actually come to believe after playing this pretty regularly for a couple of weeks is that it doesn't hold up quite as well to repeated, like really repeated plays as some other games. Like Terraforming Mars is a great example, and it's one that's on my mind because we've been playing it so much. In that one, there's enough variety that it just it always feels new, it always feels fresh. I have to play a lot of terraforming before I start getting tired. Tapestry, a little bit less so, which is not to say it's any less of a quality game. I think it's a wonderful game, and honestly, if it came down to it, if you know, I was away from games for three months and I was coming back, I may very well want to play Tapestry because I think I actually like the game, the base of it, a little bit better. But adding that third player in made such a huge difference because it, it really changed up the dynamic in the game that we were playing. Now, Chris, I think Tapestry was in your top 10 of all time, but you were kind of maybe questioning that. How is it holding up after your recent plays? I think I talked to Tim about that this weekend, and my conclusion was that I had Tapestry as a 10, I think, in my BGG rating, and Terraforming as a 9, and I think I may swap the two. Okay. Both great games. I love them both, but there's that. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, I just wanted to call out, we've talked about this on our, you know, on an episode before, and we'll probably be doing a double take on it at some point, but I did really like, this was my first multiplayer game with the Plans and Ploys expansion. The three randomly drew were all a blast. These were all new civilizations from the expansion, and they were all fun, they were thematic, they, were, they did very unique things, and they were fun to interact with. So really appreciated what the expansion brought had a great time with the interaction on the board. Like you said, I do think three players is even more fun than two. So great play for me. I don't have a whole lot else to say after everything else we've talked about with this game, but I had fun with it in any case. So glad yeah, we Yeah, and I think that. three players really is a sweet spot with this game, like you said. And I, I forgot to mention the plans and ploys, and you're right, that was we had added that in, and it was only my second time playing it, and I thought that the extra content 
and variation there is just worth its weight in gold. I thought that was terrific. Yeah, and Chris, I think this was your only win of the weekend too. Oh no, no, not not quite. We'll we'll, we'll talk about the next one. But congratulations on your tapestry win. Ah, <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> All right, we decided to play a few more games. First one we pulled out, another Stonemeyer game, Red Rising by Jamie Stegmeyer and Alex Schmidt, and published by Stonemeyer Games. And this was just kind of a, we hadn't played it for a while. I was sitting on Chris's shelf, and I was like, Chris, why don't we just, this will take us 45 minutes. Let's let's bust out a game of Red Rising. And going into that, Chris, you were kind of feeling a little bit not too hot on Red Rising. You played a few games of it before. What do you think? I actually really enjoyed it. And honestly, I warmed up to it as we kept playing it. You know, no surprise, this is not my favorite mechanism. I think I talked about that when we had our review of this game. This is just not my ideal game style. And I'm trying to remember the other one that, uh, this is very similar to Fantasy Realms and I didn't like that game much at all. So I kind of come at it from a position of a little bit of skepticism, but I do like the thematics of this game. I like the art in this game. I like the story because I've enjoyed the Red Rising books. And I like enough of what's going on in this game that for the wait, for the time it takes to play a game, I, I really enjoyed it. But that said, it really would have been nice if I'd been able to pull off a win on that one. You did. You did. I forgot. Oh, you wait, that, oh wait, that's right. I did. <laughs> you crushed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. This is one of the other wins that you did have this weekend. Yeah, you crushed me on, on Red Rising on this game. I want to just, before I jump in, Adam... You, you also bought this game after we played it. You seemed to enjoy mm-hmm. it when we first reviewed it and everything like that. How has this hold up for you? Have you played it at all since then? You know, I haven't played it at all since then, but I don't know. This one's a kind of conundrum for me. I think I still would really like it, even though, you know, I haven't actually played it much since then. How's it holding up for you guys? Yeah, so I was going to say, this game is a weird mix for me because I like the puzzle there. I think it is... Like, I like it more than Fantasy Realms and that there's a little bit more meat on the bone. You know, like, it's a similar game, but there are more fun decisions to make and a little bit more that you're progressing to. But then it almost suffers from that, too, because the game still does have a high element of that randomness that Fantasy Realms brings in, where even though you can head towards a strategy and you can make strategic decisions, you're pretty beholden to the cards that get drawn and how those are available to you. And so it it goes maybe just a little bit too long for a game that is that really luck based even though it is fun decisions to make yeah it's just it's a it's a weird mix it's a game that it has to be the right time frame i think to pull it out and and say yeah this is how much time we've got that's a great game for it but anything less it's it's going to go a little too long anything longer i'd rather be paint playing something that's a little bit more strategic how long did it take you guys to play it was probably 40 minutes 45 minutes it, it went it went pretty quick right yeah i think it was something about that and Adam, I, I recall on the night that we played this for our review, both of us, you and I, kind of concluded that we did not feel like we could put anything together. We were just stumbling around and fumbling around. And that's one thing about this game that, and it's been a long time since I played Fantasy Realm, so maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly, but I felt like the puzzle was slightly simpler in mm-hmm. Fantasy Realms. In this game, there's so many cards that feel like they have a paragraph of text on them, and I'm reading the card going, when in the world is that ever going to become useful? And obviously they're useful for a reason. Everything was put in there for a specific purpose and there's scenarios where they're useful. But for so many of them, it's not in any way obvious until you know the game better. And I think that that is, it adds some complexity and maybe some replayability, but it's also a bit of a weakness, I think, when you don't know the game that well. Agreed. The time it takes to parse the bottom, the text on each card is, it's, 
it's a long time. You think about it, it's not a clearly simple kind of iconography that you can just get the hang of and breeze right through. So I think that text yeah, I, at the bottom really adds to the length of the game. I think that's what I was trying to express and I wasn't saying well. And that, that's the problem is that for the length of the game, it's too short to justify investing the time into understanding what all of the cards do and try to search for the solution to fit with them. Mm-hmm. But it's too long, you know, to be a, to be a much simpler game. So yeah, I think that's that's kind of the gist. It's just like right in the middle ground of what I am looking for, either for a light game or for a, you know for a midweight game. The one other thing that did happen in this particular game, which had happened to me once before, and I I understand that this can really sour people on a game, is that the first turn Chris made me discard a card, so I'm down to four cards. The second turn Chris makes me discard another card, so I'm down to three cards. And he draws a six one on the next turn. So it's like my three cards to his six. It seemed like an impossibility for me to actually catch up and do anything. Now, I did find some solutions. I found a way to get back up to five cards. Chris did end up at like seven, so he still had a little bit of an advantage. But I had to really scratch and claw to even make a hand, to make anything that could have been a usable hand. And I think that is a bit of a failing here where, you know, the individual cards and the value of them is so valuable. And then there's a handful of cards in the deck that make you just knock one out of somebody's hand. So I, I think that that has been a common complaint. And um, Jamie Stegmeyer actually said recently that he put out an official variant, which he doesn't do very often, saying that I think it was if somebody has, maybe if they have five cards in their hand, you can't do that anymore or something like that. But there was a, a specific variant rule that he suggested as an official variant to kind of address that that concern. Because then um, you can't you can't go below five cards. You can't go something like I, yeah. I don't remember if that's exactly what it was, but it was something like that. So I do think that that is a, a, a flaw of the game as something. If, if you're trying to play this as a strategic game, that particular effect really makes takes any control of or any possibility of winning away from you. I think, and so I think they tried to address that. But again, it's it's not so long of a game where you know it's not that big of a deal if you just have a little bit of bad luck in one game and you can get back and play it. But my own feeling since we reviewed it is that I thought it was a really fun puzzle at first. But I don't think it's a game that I'm loving enough to want to go back to all the time. So it's, it's probably a little bit weaker than I was hoping it was going to be. Still a game that I had fun playing with. All right, so let's talk about the last game that we played of the night. And we're just getting into like 11 o'clock, 11.30. And Chris is like, hey, I didn't like my first play on Marvel United, but why don't we try it with one of the expansions and see what you think and, and see, you know, I'll see if it feels any better for me with one of the ex- expansions. So we watched a really quick... Uh, teaching video from Simon because he hadn't played it for a little while. We busted out the Infinity Gauntlet or Infinity Works expansion, I think, which is kind of a little campaign that we use four different factions, put it together. Chris, how'd it go for you? Was it, did it improve the experience? No, not at all. <laughs> My complaint about this game is that it just doesn't have enough meat on the bone to keep it interesting. And I, interestingly, I think you had you had tweeted something about this or maybe on Facebook and you got a bunch of responses back from folks saying it's a fun game. It's a good family weight game, which, which may very well be true. I have not played it with, uh, with my son. I, it's not, not his type of game, but it's something where it feels like it was marketed incorrectly. And I'm sort of paraphrasing you here a little bit because I kind of got this idea from you, but it's the fact that there was so much expansion content on this one, and it was not a cheap game. I think I probably ended up spending two, $300 on this game when I got it on Kickstarter. And that, for a pretty lightweight family game, just doesn't really seem appropriate. And a lot of the things that I have complaints about there, it's, it's got a lot to do with the lack of variability 
especially among characters. I mean, there's a whole box full of expansion characters that you can play. And at least from what I'm seeing, there's not a whole lot of difference. If you're someone who's into Marvel, if you're into the characters, if that's interesting to you, then you're going to want to see that there's really some difference between the characters that you can play because they're going to mean something to you and you're going to love them for one reason or another. In this game, there's basically three three actions that each character can take, and I, I don't think there's any deviation from that. What did you think yeah. about it? Well, so first let me just tell, uh, in case our listeners don't know how it plays, because I think it helps to the conversation, really quick overview. It's a co-op game. Basically, you set up uh, like six or seven location cards in a circle around the board, and in the middle is the villain's abilities and cards. And so you put one of your characters on each of the locations, and the villain starts on a location. And the whole factor is that essentially during your turn, you're going to either move your hero to another location adjacent, or you're going to make an attack in that location. So it can be against the villain, or it can be against one of their henchmen, which are little tokens on some of the locations. Or you can use like a a special power, which, I don't know, helps rescue a civilian or something like that. So those are kind of the three actions that Chris is talking about. That's the gist of the game, and essentially that's all you need to know. And that's the problem. There, That's all that's there in the game. Now, I think the problem for Chris here was that this was an expectation. Found the Simon game created by Eric Lang, one of his favorite designers who's created games like Blood Rage and Rising Sun. It's 60 bucks for the base game, but then there's a bunch of expansions. So what, spent like $300 on this game that ends up being a light kids game. And this is not even something I would call a family game, really. This is a kids game. This game is not a game that two adults are generally going to, I think, sit down and have a fun time playing. I'm sure you can lose to it like you can any co-op game. This is basically just another variation on Pandemic. What happens is that each character plays a card out around the, the board, and then after three cards, then you draw one off the villain deck and it does something. And if randomly it does the wrong thing for you, you might lose the game. And if randomly it doesn't, you might win the game. And so not only is it not interesting decisions to make, whether you win or lose is probably very not much based on what you're actually doing and, and more just based on how the card draws come out, just like something like Pandemic. Now you said this was a kid's game. Is it even good for kids? Like, would you recommend it for kids? Well, so it, I, I think it probably could be fun with a kid. You know, it's simple enough that you could teach it and they could understand the concept and the fact that they just get to, like, be moving their heroes around and doing some really simple things. Listen, you know, we played his son requested Sorry. We'll talk about that in a second. But Sorry the next morning, right? Because that's the game that he has fun playing. And we talked about it in our last episode that... I think there is an element of kids just enjoying the experience of getting to sit down, play a game with their family, and just do what the game says to do, you know, without really having to make any choices. And that's what Marvel's doing for you. Play some cards, not giving you a whole lot of choices, and maybe you get a fun experience of that, hey, I just got to defeat the villain. So I think this could be a fun you know, game to play with your kids or for a couple 10 or 11-year-olds to play together. They might have a blast with it. And when I commented on Twitter about how I thought that this was poorly marketed to, to put this on Kickstarter and you know charge $300 for it, I got a lot of comments from people that agreed with me, but I also got a lot of comments from people that said they've had a blast with their kids playing it. And that's the key, though. That's the people that mostly had fun with it, that they were playing it with their kids. And Chris bought a game thinking, this is a game that, a hob- you know, it's marketed to hobbyists. It's, they're selling it on Kickstarter for several hundred dollars. And I like Marvel. I think this could be a fun game to play. And it's not it's not for a hobbyist gamer. You know, that's that's my view on it. And I think that's the general problems with it. I don't think it's a terrible game. I think for a kid or for a family that's playing with young kids, I think it's just fine. But 
buy the base box for 30 bucks. I think it's on sale on uh, Walmart for $9 right now, someone told me today. Yeah. So go pick it up for $9. It's a great game to play with your 10 or 11-year-old, and you might have a blast with it. Uh, it's better than watching TV, right? So fine for that purpose. I don't know why anyone would spend $300. If they knew how this game played, why they would go all in on the miniatures. Because the other thing is, is like all, most of the expansion content is adding new characters. The characters don't do anything different. You have different mini sculpts with them, but other than that, the car individual decks are almost exactly the same. The villains may do different things, and that's fine. We only play—I only played one villain, so I can't really speak to that. But it can't possibly be enough to make the lack of variety in your hero decks worthwhile or, or that much more fun when you're playing with them. So yeah, the heroes—the different heroes don't appear to do much different. I think there is some some specificity with uh, the powers of a particular hero. So, for example, there is a, there was an Iron Man card that was called something like Stark Industries Tech or something like that, and it lets you give a couple of tokens to another player. And that kind of thing is there's a little bit of personalization and customization there for the characters, but there's only so much of that you can do with three basic move, hit, save someone actions, and there's just really not enough to it. Yeah. And even the campaign, you know, like I that's I had heard some reviews saying, yeah, you know, the base game's pretty simple, but hey, bust into the Infinity Gauntlet uh, expansion because it gives you four different characters and a campaign mode to fight about. Well, I, I didn't, we didn't play the whole thing, but I read the rules for it. And essentially what happens, you shuffle these Invi Infinity Stone, Infinity Stone cards into the into the villain's deck. And if you get far enough into the deck where a stone comes up, then maybe it gets put into the gauntlet and it doesn't it doesn't come up till the, you know, if um, it doesn't show up in the next villain's deck because it's already in the gauntlet. And so then if all the stones get in the gauntlet, then the, the villains lose. But in our game, we played for, I don't know, 10, 11 minutes, beat the villain, none of the stones came up. So we would have gone into the next game of the campaign with no change at all. It would have had zero impact on the rest of the story. We would have fought two more villains. Maybe we would have lost because all the stones came up at the top of the deck next time, or maybe nothing would have happened again. So I just don't see that it, it really adds enough. Again, for a kid, just fine, but um, but not for you know for hobby gamers. I, I wouldn't recommend buying it. I, I know we're talking a long time about this, but I got two more things to say about it. Number one is that I listened to a whole bunch of reviewers, like podcasters and reviewers that had backed the original Marvel United, got all these pledges and everything, and then talked about the same stuff and then we're pushing the X-Men United Kickstarter like a month, you know, a month ago or so after they'd already gotten all this and know that this is not a good game for hobby gamers. That's really frustrating. Guys, if, if why would you want people to buy all this stuff just because you like Marvel characters? So that was that was, you know, kind of frustrating to watch that all come together and then actually play it once and realize that this is just not a game that you should be marketing to to experienced hobby gamers that are looking for something meaty. But that's just, you know, I'm speaking for myself. Maybe some people do really like it. The other thing I'll say is that the setup for the game took about 15 minutes. The game itself took about 12 minutes. It's a terrible investment and payoff. If you're going to play a light game, play Star Realms. It takes you three seconds to set up, and then you get a good 15-minute crunchy, you know, fun game out of it. So one final complaint I had. Yeah, super yeah. fiddly. I agree with yeah. that completely. Chris, Tim has buried this game six feet under. Is there anything, anything that brings it a shred of life? Honestly, for me, no. And mm -hmm. I say that with respect for anybody who likes the game and has fun with their kids. That was not my scenario. I was a, a, an adult gamer, a comic book fan, looking to play it with my adult friends, and it was a, an incredibly bad choice for me. So no, I, I don't think that there was any saving grace. And in fact, 
the next morning after these, that was the last game we played before heading off to bed. And the next morning I woke up and said, man, you know, maybe we should just give it one more chance. And then I thought about it for a second and thought, but why I've played it twice now and didn't enjoy it in the least either game. Why pull it back out? I just, it just doesn't, just doesn't do it for me. Wow. So that was our first on Friday night, man. We landed in Portland and we got all those games done already. So it was a great start to the weekend. Got a good night's sleep. I slept in until 10 a.m. somehow. I don't know if you guys let me sleep. You should have had me up at 6 a.m. playing some more. But I came down. Chris had some coffee ready for me. And um, his son was, you know, he'd been watching us game the night before. He's like, guys, will you play sorry with me? So we sat down, the whole family, all four of us, uh, Rachel, Chris, Nathan, and myself, sat down and played a game of sorry. Don't have much to say about that. Sorry's a classic, you know, Parker Brothers family weight game. Other than, can you believe it, Adam? Chris actually had analysis paralysis playing Sorry. So this is not related to the weight of the games that we're playing. This is just a Chris thing. Well, I don't know, but there's some complex decisions to be made in the game of Sorry. So I'm sure Chris was <laughs> figuring out all the math. I can't tell if that's sarcasm or not, Adam. <laughs> but I will exactly. say. I, but I will say this. I will say that there is more to that game than there are to many other similar games. You know that similar weight games like you know Monopoly and, and things like that. Trouble. That's, that's not true, Chris. There's absolutely not more to that game than Monopoly or Trouble or Parcheesi or a billion. I wouldn't other underestimate like the these. things that Chris sees compared to what everybody yeah. else sees. Yep, Chris. Hey, how, Chris, there's, how there's, a reason that, it's, there's a reason it's been around so long, Tim. <laughs> Chris, how did you do in that game of sorry? I I blocked it from my mind. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Anyway, it was a fun time playing with his family, and Nathan was uh, just one one move away from taking the the win, but I beat him. So master master gamer. Hey, <laughs> before we go on to the next game that we played, I'm just going to put in a quick one minute plug for a game that Nathan and I played a couple times that morning just the he and I and it's Zombie Kids Evolution, which is the exact opposite in every good way of Marvel United in that it is a I think it's a 15-20 game comes in a little box it takes about 3 minutes to set it up, it takes about 2 minutes to teach it, 5 if you're teaching it to a young child. And it is, it's co-op, and it is super fun. It's cheap because it doesn't have any minis. It's got a few standees, but it's got legacy content that just drives you and makes you want to play it. And you just want to get to that next you know, envelope that you get to open up and put, pull a new superpower out. And I would absolutely recommend anybody who's looking for a, a game that you can play with a family, young family member, Zombie Kids Evolution is a far better investment in money and time than Marvel United. Excellent, Chris. That's awesome. Hey, we never did get to play that three-player mode in our three-player version and unlock the, the achievement that you were going for. So no. sorry we didn't get that in. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, so um, after that, we, we did get... Rachel was ready to play another game with us, and I was excited to get a three-player game of Terraforming Mars. Chris had just gotten his Prelude expansion delivered the day before. So we busted out Prelude and jumped into a game of Terraforming Mars. Fantastic. You, you have the big box expansion. We played on the Hellas side of the board, which I think was actually a first for me. I've never played on that side of the board before. And what do you think, Chris? Anything that stands out to you on this play? Well, I thought it was Hellas cool. <laughs> yes. Nailed it. <laughs> well, actually, before I launch into him, I actually wanted to throw that question back at you because I know you've been playing it a lot in solo mode. And I have not played it in solo mode, but I know you have. And I'm curious to hear, 
how it felt going from solo mode with all the expansion content to going back to playing not just a, a multiplayer game, but a three-player game instead of like a two-player game? Uh, yeah, first of all, I don't think that this is a great solo game, and a lot of people will contradict me, but the main reason is that the way you win the solo game is by completing all three of the, the global parameters by a certain, I think, round 14. And so the solo mode basically just pushes you to buy things that will push the global parameters. That's, in fact, I've, I've read, I think if you just buy basic, uh, the basic actions, you can beat the solo mode by just wow. buying basic actions. I don't know if that's true. I think I've read that. But I still have a fun time with it. It's just that it, you don't get to, there's a lot of cards you that game that you just won't even use in solo because they don't kind of get you to that objective. That's my experience after about a dozen solo plays of it. So still like to bust it out one, once in a while. Just I like playing, the, I like, you know, looking at the combos and stuff like that. But there are certain cards that if they come up, they're super powerful. You can start pushing the, the um, temperature up or you can start pushing the oxygen level up or whatever, get oceans out. And otherwise you're just kind of digging for those. What, Adam, you've played it solo a bit. What do you think? Is that is that an accurate assessment or am I way off here? Tim, now I can't believe I want to go try it on the app and see if I can win the solo mode just doing the standard actions. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what I, yeah, that's, there's a couple ways to play the solo mode now. So you can do it if you reach the global parameters by a certain uh, generation, depending on which expansion you're using, or there's other criteria that they've added in with the different expansions. You can say, try to meet this criteria, try to meet this criteria. Well, one of them I think is have this much TR by the end of the round, by end of round, whatever, 12 or 14. I remember that the, some of those the expansions did add some alternate solo modes, so I haven't tried those yet. Anyway, that's my feel about it as solo, is that I, I do pull it out once in a while just because I love the game so much, but I don't love playing it solo. So comparatively, this was an absolute blast. My favorite way to play most games is three-player, and Terraforming Mars is no exception. We had some great interna interaction for the awards. In fact, that's the thing I love about three-player in this game, is that you have the second place for the awards available, which in two-player, you only have the first place. And that makes a big difference because you not only are motivated to go after an award that you fund, but you're also motivated to pursue the awards that other people are funding and at least try to get those couple points as a second. And we had some great competition there. Fun interaction in the three-player game and had a blast playing it. So, yeah, to totally loved it. Yeah, I don't have a lot to say about this one that I haven't already said on the podcast earlier other than to say this is my first time playing or talking about this game on the podcast after playing with the big box content with the special tiles with the prelude that was my first game ever with the prelude expansion and so i was really looking forward to trying that and i really like what that added to the game and in this in a moment of pure tactical brilliance <laughs> i uh, set myself up perfectly with my corporation and my prelude cards to set me up to get that minor award at the end of the game only to realize when I took my first turn, oops, we're playing on Hellas that doesn't have a minor award. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, the, the milestone, that's right. <laughs> cue, cue sad trombone noise here. Yeah, it's hilarious. As soon as he, we're, we get around to his turn and he's just like, oh, man, I can't believe I just did that. Uh, it was a fun play anyway, so I'm glad we got a chance to do a fun playing with Rachel. Rachel's a hardcore gamer, too, though, because she'll be like, okay, it's my turn. You can't talk. I got to focus on my turn right now. So it was fun. She was very competitive. It was great playing with her. So I played this game over a hundred times. I don't think I've ever played it at three. I've only really? played it. I've only played it at four and at two. So that's not true, Adam, because you played it with you, me, and Steve on our last double take on this one. So you did okay. play it one time. Yeah, I think because I don't think Chris made that night. So yeah, I think it was just the three of us on that one, if I remember right. I stand corrected. Let me second what Tim said earlier. This is something I think is true of so many games. 
that three players is a sweet spot on this game, like it is on so many. I think generally three players is a sweet spot, but this one certainly. All right, so after that, we went out to a really nice dinner up on a cliffside overlooking a river. It's a great time, nice drinks. Came back, and Steve joined us. He Ubered in from Portland proper and took a car down, and we jumped into Pendulum by Stonemaier Games, and Travis P. Jones is the designer. So if you're not familiar with Pendulum, this is a very unique game in that it is a worker placement resource management game that's played real time. So there are some timers on the board, and people are actually rushing to take their actions and get workers placed before a timer flips over when they can then activate the actions. It's very unique for a kind of Euro or resource management style of game. And we expected it to be unique. So it's one of the reasons we really wanted to get it played this weekend, especially we thought this would be really good at three players versus trying it just me and Chris. So when when Steve decided to make the trip over, this was one of the first things we, we wanted to get in. Adam, are you familiar with this game? Do you know anything about it? I'm loosely familiar with the game. I'm you know, there's timers and you got to do stuff with the time and then you go. I heard it's like like high speed finger twister almost or there's like it turns into almost some sort of a dance with elegant movements. That's what I heard about this game. Any of that true? I would say it from what I've heard, it, it was not as challenging kind of managing the board state as I was expecting it to be. People weren't really like getting in each other's ways or anything like that. It was pretty easy to navigate the board. But that's just speaking to the kind of high speed finger movement. But Chris, what did you think of the game? You want to give some some of your thoughts on after a first... And we actually kind of played two plays, but why don't you talk to that, Chris? Well, the first play that we did, there's a variant that you can play that doesn't use the timers, or it doesn't use them to actually keep time. You're using them as markers, but not as timers. And it's a way to learn the game without having to go through the stress of having the timers going. And interestingly, this is one where pretty much everybody, Stonemeyer and anybody who's going to teach you the game will say, everybody has to really know this game before you can jump into it. It's not like you can teach as you go because it's being played in real time. And so we did that first as a teaching game. And then we got jumped in the second game and we actually started using the timers. And what a difference because the first game, it actually got quite boring. It's relatively simple in terms of the basic worker placement mechanisms that are happening. But it's really those timers that make this game unique. And I'll go one step farther. I'll say it's probably the most unique game that I've ever seen. I think Tim said one of the most unique. I'll say this is probably the most unique. And there really was a dance going on. And that added an incredible amount of pressure. I'm sitting there with guys in my hand, my meeples, looking at the timers, thinking about what I need to do on one part of the game, when all of a sudden I think, oh crap, that timer is about to go out. I need to put a meeple down over there so I can get the benefit before Tim flips it over and I don't have the opportunity anymore. Because the basic mechanism of this game, other than putting down workers, what controls the ability to put down workers is when a timer flips. A timer flips to one zone and you can do something in that one zone. Timer flips to another zone and the t then you're allowed to do something in that zone. And it's the actual amount of time on the timer that dictates how long you can do something there. Now, you don't have to change a timer. You don't have to flip it back over. That relies on someone else to actually see the timer and flip it over or for you to flip it over. And I was looking at these spots thinking, I better put something out. And seeing that, you know, Tim's like watching like a hawk waiting to flip that thing over and like, I better do it quick because otherwise I'm going to miss out and hope that maybe someone's a little slower on the draw. So I thought that that mechanism was really, really interesting and it, it was completely unique. It was completely unique. Now I'm curious, Adam, it's one of these games where going into it, I hadn't the slightest idea 
of what it might actually be like to play. I mean, I had a rough idea of the concept, but I couldn't really picture what it would be like to play this game. And I'm curious, does this sound appealing to you at all? Well, yeah, hearing you talk about it, that kind of changes my perception of the game totally. Maybe I would be interested. Is this does it get so intense? Are people's fingers like hovering over the timers, waiting for somebody to do something, and then you're kind of flipping it in their face or anything like that? Or it's just very casual and gentle. I would say it's a mix of that. I mean, you do want to try to rush in and beat somebody before they're ready to, but it's not happening a whole lot like that. Okay. Let me f- fill in a couple thoughts I have here. The first is that one of the biggest drawbacks of this game, and one of the reasons I was hesitant to to pick it up and actually buy a copy of it, even though I was really interested in trying it out, is that learning curve on it. You know, we, Chris and I watched a Rodney Smith's video on it. We sat down, we set up the game, and they were just like, I still don't really understand what's going to happen here. I felt like I had a little bit better view because I had watched a, uh, like an actual gameplay video at, at one point. So I kind of had a picture of how it was going to flow, but they were like, I still don't even know how this is going to work. So we started with the untimed version and, and the game recommends that you the first time someone's playing, you play the first round with untimed, and then you move in from there. So we went through the first round, and that was really fascinating. And we're like, wow, this is kind of a cool thing that's happening back and forth here. And then you get to the end of the first round, and there's this um, council phase where you then, depending on who got the most votes in the phase, which is just a resource. You're not voting for each other, but you just are picking up these little purple resources that count as votes. But whoever has the most votes gets to make some decisions, they get some extra benefits. And then you kind of reset the game board and you just start the next round. But we were about to start the next round. I'm like, guys, you're ready to jump in timed. And Steve and Chris are like, no, we st- I still don't have any idea how I would do this timed. I'm still barely remembering where to put my worker when I need to, which zone do I have to put it in? So we played through a second phase and then they're like, okay, we're starting to get it, but why don't we just finish this game untimed, and then we'll just do a full timed version. So we got into the third round, played about halfway through it, and we're all like, wow, this is really dull. Now that we understand how the mechanisms are working, not having any kind of rush to place things, hmm. it's very easy to make decisions on what do I need, where am I going to place my thing, and there's not, you can get in the way of people, but you have some ways to mitigate that to an extent. So... Playing through another untimed round, we were just like, this isn't even fun. We don't even want to finish the game. Now we understand the game enough. Let's play a timed version. So that was one of the flaws is that before you can even actually play this game, you basically have to play a teaching game and and let people learn to play it. And I think that's a challenge. I think it makes for, you know, I play one or two games a week maybe with friends. I don't want to spend one game night teaching a game so that we can go and play a game on the next time and in the future. So that's a challenge. Anyway, we did get in. We played that second game timed and it did completely change things in my opinion very fun it, it was really a fun experience playing it with the timers on there it was more challenging figuring out when to go where to go there's a whole bunch more i could say about that but i'll just say that we got to the end of the game and the way the game scores is that you each have four different tracks scoring tracks and so basically what you're doing during the game is picking up resources and converting them to points with a few different mechanisms And so you basically have to push all of your point trackers past a certain point or you can't win the game. But if you pass those, then whoever has passed those points the most wins the game. Steve and I had both closed off all of our points by the end of the game. There was nowhere else you could go. Chris had one point left to do. So essentially it came down to who had the most votes, which is a a specific type of resource at the game. Then it was really a letdown because we were like, we just played through this whole thing that should have been a tight competition and just pushing for the final resource in the time that you have available, but it was so anticlimactic at the end of it. 
That said, I think the reason that happened is because we were playing wrong. I think one of the rounds, we flipped the purple timer over one more time than we needed to, which gave us all basically an extra quarter of a round to play with. But how would you know that? The game, because it's timed and because everybody's kind of doing these things on their own time, it's not like a traditional Euro. You can't say, oh, so you played that wrong, or oh, wait, did you did you remember to do this thing while you're playing? And I think that's going to happen all the time with this game. So I honestly think that the reason why it was anticlimactic at the end was because we got some extra time that we shouldn't have. But I think it's going to happen all the time. I think people are, because you're rushing around, you're going to forget to pay resources for something. I think you're going to forget to take an action. You're going to do what we did, which is we just flip the purple timer and you're supposed to push a little thing off the side so you know it was flipped and we forgot to do it and i i think the game is so unique and the premise is so cool with it but i think those couple of flaws with it are going to make it a game that is sometimes not a good experience which makes it me not really want to go back to it frequently I, it was fun adam i think you should try it with us i think if we bring it to tim con it might be worth it for the four of us to get it out and play it because it's a fun experience but Ultimately, I don't think it's a game that I could go back to frequently because of some of those challenges. Continually not a good experience that you wouldn't go back to frequently. That's, yeah, that's basically it. Well, okay. Chris, I mean, I just kind of went a long time on some of those challenges that we had with it, but did you did you feel the same way? Do you think that those were kind of the key challenges, and did you think that the the fun of the game paid off, or did you find it fun? You, you didn't really talk about the time version and how, that, how you felt for that. I did think it was fun. I did agree with all the things that you saw as shortcomings. And honestly, in the end, I see it as a novelty. Mm-hmm. You know, there's any, any hobby, you'll have a thing that is not really at the, doesn't get at the heart of what's fun about it, but it's something off on the side enough that it makes it interesting and worth trying. Like, absolutely, I think we should bust this out for a game in October at TimCon. I mean, I think Adam would get a kick out of it. I got a kick out of playing it, too. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a fun game, but it's not something that I'm going to break out very often. It's the kind of thing I would say for an occasion when there's lots of games being played because you made a very good point about the barrier to entry and the time to ramp up to it and do you really want to spend your game night doing that. But if we have a weekend together and we're spending a bunch of time playing games, yeah, it may very well be worth it, especially once you've got one or two people who know how to play the game. But it's not one that's going to come out very often. Yeah, and I'm even thinking about that timing. Like, is that something, because we would have to spend half a game teaching Adam and letting him learn to play and us getting back in the groove again. Because I think even if you don't play this for six weeks, you're going to need that kind of re-exposure to it to, to be able to play it well. And I'm not sure that I'd want to spend two or three hours kind of getting us back into the groove for that one novel experience, the novelty of it. I think the challenge is, is that this could be a, it's a fun experience, but when you get to the end of it, do you actually know who won? Because how many <laughs> rules mistakes were made? How many times did people put their meeple on the wrong place where they weren't supposed to and still took the resources for it? We saw it happen a half dozen times in our game and we just kind of passed over it. But I think it's going to happen all the time there. As much as I would love Adam to experience and as much as I wouldn't even mind experiencing it again, I'm not sure I want to put that much time into getting back into the groove and playing a good game out of it and then assuming that it's going to be a, a good experience. Five or six mistakes in a game without a timer. So this is like scary. Right? <laughs> well, that's, that's what I mean. I mean, like, you know, most of the time we're playing games and I'm constantly like, oh, Adam, were you supposed to take that resource? Chris, did you did you pay for that first? You know, and I, half the time you did, but it, it's just, it happens. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're thinking about too many things in these games and this one just doesn't give you the chance to have people help you catch your mistakes or even for you to go back and say, wait, did I pay for that? I don't know. I can't calculate it now. I better yeah. just keep moving. I think it was really cool that Stonemaier Games did something so unique 
this was something that was probably a huge risk to take, and it's really they rolled cool. the dice. Would you say they rolled the dice with this one? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, they flipped the sand timer. But um, <laughs> it, it was it was cool that they that they took this risk and put out something that was very unique. But for me, I don't think I, we were asking about like who would this be the right fit for? What group would be this a, a good fit for this? Maybe a group that has a very small number of games and just plays those games repeatedly, assuming that it is not as easy as it came off for us and it was just rules problems that made that happen because otherwise it wouldn't even be fun to play multiple times. But if it was a competitive game and you just got into the flow of it, it it really could be fun, I think. I just don't see most hobby gamers going back to this frequently enough to be, you know, an exceptional experience because you'd have to get the same group of people going back to it frequently, you know. So, Adam... You've now heard from Tim, barrier to entry, not worth the payoff, too much of an investment, probably wouldn't come back to it. From me, you're hearing, those are all legitimate concerns, but the novelty and the strangeness of it made it fun enough to do it. Where do you cast your vote? Right, this is a tough one. I would, at some point, want to take a look at it and see what this game is all about. Would I want to do that in the middle of a of a TimCon when there's a bunch of games on the menu and disrupt the whole flow? I don't think so. So this is like, uh, you know, on a, a stormy night, you know, rain delay, baseball games canceled, staying <laughs> in, let's get out the old pendulum and see how this thing actually works. I remember Grampy told me a story about this one. Let's check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and we had a, we actually honestly did have a blast exploring it. Like, yeah. you know, the three of us kind of sitting down, having a beer and, sifting through trying to understand how it worked and then the light bulb goes off and you're like oh now i get how it works let's play it you know and getting to try that experience it was a fun experience to go through i don't regret that we did that i'm just not sure that having done that i want to go again for me i think i would just say and this is the last thing i'll say about this because obviously this game generated a lot of conversation yeah my view of this one is if the four of us knew how to play this game it would be the one that you know, whenever we get together, you know, once, twice a year, however often it is, over the course of a weekend, someone says, hey, let's bust out Pendulum for a game. And it's a fun diversion, something a little bit different than all the other games. I could see that happening. Yeah. At least for me. Obviously, you disagree. So maybe it wouldn't actually happen. <laughs> so I'll say one last thing about it, and that is that I actually adore the production on this game. Mm-hmm. I thought I love the board art. I love the... This, the, the player board art, I love the, the cards, I love everything about the style, the colorfulness of it. Look at the picture that we I posted on Twitter. The game just looks cool. It looks beautiful. So I've heard some people that said they really didn't like the art in the game. I disagree. I, I really do like the production of it. So it's a shame that it wasn't a bigger hit for me because it's a game that I, I think you know is beautiful and, and has some things going for it. Uh, just, just a little bit too much of a novelty to come back to frequently. Now, I'll say one last thing about it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. What's the next game? All right, sounds good. So we had uh, time for one more game. It was already like midnight at that point. And Chris and I really wanted to play a game of Outlive. And Outlive is a older game by Le Boy de Joux, which is a French publisher. I think this was their first Kickstarter. The designers' names are Miguel Coimbra and Michael Jenkins. This is a game I have had for a long time. I eventually gave it to Chris, but him and I played many times together with it. And it's a game I miss. I think it's the only game I've ever given away or gotten rid of. One of two that I regret, that I I love the game. I think it's so much fun. And I think the only reason I gave it away was because at the time I was keeping a collection of like 10 games and I felt like it had been played out. 
but I think about it all the time. And so I really want to get this played. We invited Steve to play it with us, taught it to him pretty quickly. And man, did I, did I love this game. Chris, how did, how did this go for you? Did you enjoy it? Did you have fun with Outlive? Outlive is one of those games that I love in a way that I can't explain or understand myself. It is not a particularly elegant game. It's a fiddly, fussy game. I mean, you've got just piles of little tokens and things on a table and a million different things that are happening that are so hard to keep track of. So it is not an easy game to learn. It is not a particularly easy game to play. It takes you a long time to set up. It takes you a long time to tear it down. But holy cow, I love it so much. It just has this magical hold over me. It's it's actually one of the one of the first games that you and I played, or at least somewhere in the first, you know, the beginning ten percent. And it's another one of the games like Scythe that convinced me that hobby board gaming was something that I could really get into. And a lot of that has to do with the amazing art, the amazing thematics, the fussiness of the gameplay, while you know a little bit overly complicated sometimes all fits in so nicely with the theme and the atmosphere of the game that it all makes perfect sense. Just as an example for that, one of the things you have to keep track of, and, and just generally for those who have not played the game before, the game is divided into a day phase and a night phase, and during the day phase you're going around the countryside trying to get resources and you know scrapping with your, uh, with your opponents, and, and then at the night phase you're coming back to your fallout shelter and building things up and prepping things for the next day. And one of the things that you have to keep track of is water. So for example, you can't go into your into your fallout shelter at night and have everybody survive if you don't have enough food and water. So it's just a perfect example of how the mechanisms really just come together to form a really immersive kind of experience. And I think that is it's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, it was it was a blast. And Chris mentioned essentially during the day you're going out there and collecting resources. So what this looks like is a, is a worker placement game. But what it really is, is it's a big rondelle that you can move both directions. And everybody has, at the start of each round, they have four different characters out on the board. Two of them have a number three, one's a number four, and one's a number five. The way these look at these plastic miniatures from the Kickstarter version of the game that we've got is it's like a little platform with either three characters, four characters, or five characters, like little minis on these platforms. So it's like a group of three, four, or five you get out there. What you do is you move one or two spaces around this rondelle, so either to the left or to the right, and there's seven spaces around the outside of the board. One of them is a forest, so you can collect wood there. One of them is a dam, so you can collect water. You have to give up a microchip, though, because you're, like, breaking into the dam to get there. Uh, you can collect ammunition at a military base. You can collect tech uh, or microchips at a fairgrounds. Um, there's a few other things, steel, you know, a few other resources you have to collect. But basically, you'll move one of your characters one or two spaces to the right, and then you will collect the number of resources equal to the number on that character. So if you move your three there, you get three of those resources. If you move your five, you get five of those resources. But if you move to a space that somebody else has already moved to in that round, then if your character is bigger than theirs, you can put pressure on them. So if you put a move a five there and they've got a three, they either have to expend two ammunition to prevent you from taking anything from them, or they have to give you two resources. So there's an opportunity to really interact with other players. I wanna to go to that space, I need exactly this number of resources, but if I go there, he could put pressure on me and you know essentially take some resources that I've already saved up for that turn. So there's a good amount of player interaction and fun decisions on the board. But as Chris said, it is pretty fiddly. 
Is that optional? Does the player always get those resources, or it's like a negotiable kind of thing? It's not optional. Yeah, it, okay. it happens unless they expend the ammunition to get rid of the, you know, to basically scare you away. The other thing about it, though, is that each round you set up a limited number of resources. So if it's water, you put nine water bottles out on that little space. So not only are you competing with people, you know, potentially taking their stuff if you put a higher numbered character there, you can go there first with your five and take five water away. Now there's only four water left for the other two characters to get in there. And maybe somebody's going to get three and the other one might get stuck with one, but they need that one water. Otherwise, they're going to lose a character out of their fallout shelter at the end of the day. So there's there's tight competition for resources. But what that leads to is the fiddliness that Chris was talking about. Is at the beginning of the game, you've got to pull out the exact right number of resources, put them on each of the spaces. And then in the, in the middle of each round, you have to refill those things. But here's the cool thing. Each of the thematic elements of this, right? You're picking up water. Or uh, what's a better example? The munitions. You can pick up ammunition, and that's one of the ways you're going to hold off opponents from stealing your resources. But there are also a couple of those spaces on the board where you can get resources, but you can also hunt there. And so there are going to be these little animal tiles that are there, and they have a certain number. It might have a five or a six, and you have to do at least that much damage to get the meat from that animal. So that's how you can expend the munition in that space to also raise your attack power and potentially kill that animal, and then you get two, three, or four meat, which you can use to feed your shelter later. So it's like every resource has multiple things you can do. Everything you do in the game has multiple kind of ways that they interact thematically. It's not just like a one-use thing. There's always multiple things you're doing, and it, it all just fits so well thematically together, and it's so fun to find equipment and build up like build up equipment, which give you, it's kind of an engine building thing. So you can go to these city places and, and get these equipment pieces that might give you like, you get the grappling hook, you can get plus one canned food when you go to the ship. You know, so there's like, there's these thematic things that the things give you, but you also have to find survivors and get more people in your fallout shelter because they're worth points at the end of the game and they have to staff your rooms if you want the engine building benefits of it. There's so many things going on here that work so well together. It, it's It's just such a fun, super fun experience. One of my favorite experiences of the night was hearing Steve's commentary on the thematics. Like, well, how come the, how come the microchip is what gets you into the, uh, into the the, the dam? How come it's, why are they all the same microchip? Shouldn't it be a different microchip? Can I just use any microchip anywhere? Yeah. And also, and also like, it's a one type of ammunition. What if I've got a different gun? (laughs) So I know theme is something that draws Chris into games. If you guys have alluded to the theme here, there's a fallout shelter, there's a, some woods. So this is post-apocalyptic. There's been a nuclear yeah. event. Yeah, that's, that's basically the, it. Yeah, that's, that's the hints I'm getting. Okay. That, yeah. That's just that you're, there are a few remaining survivors that are out there trying to scavenge and, and build up your shelter. And then one other really cool element of the game are these events. So there's the game's played over six rounds. And each round of the game, you have to flip over one event card. So you don't know what it is pre- prior to that. And at the end of the round, in player order, you have a chance to solve that event. So the event shows you what the cost is to solve it. It might be a pretty massive pile of resources that you have to collect. But if you can solve it, it gets removed for everybody, and you get the victory points for it. If you don't solve it, then the next person in turn order gets the chance to. But if nobody solves it, everybody gets a negative effect. And if you don't solve it the next turn, that builds on to the next event that comes up. So let's say that the first one was nuclear fallout and it starts making everybody's radiation levels go up which are negative points at the end of the game and then the next event that gets turned over is like rats which is now there's less food available on the table or everyone has to discard a food because there's rats in the shelters and so these events add up and so you're all kind of like 
oh, if you don't mess with me this time, I'll defeat that thing. And you're like, well, I don't want that thing happening to me, but I also don't want you to get the five points for beating that event. So, nope, I'll just deal with the rats eating my food. So it's a fun push and pull, and people are pushing, you know, trying to get those things so they can defeat it. But if you give up your resources to defeat that event that's helping everybody, you're not spending the resources to build equipment or to repair equipment or build fallout shelter rooms, which are a different way to get points. So it's it's just one more thematic element in every game because the events are it comes from a stack. They're random. The characters are random, and they have different starting abilities. The equipment that you find is the huge stack of random equipment, huge stack of random rooms that you would build in your shelter. So every game just you know has different things you can be doing and features that you're going for. The one other thing I wanted to add about this game was that uh, Steve had played it one time before, and he wasn't quite sure why, but he just recalled that he hadn't had a particularly good experience with it. Played it that night and had a great experience with it, and has since asked for it again. So it's uh, it definitely made a good impression on Steve, I believe. Yeah, it's funny. I remember the first game I ever had of this, too. I thought it was pretty interesting, but I also thought that it was kind of a clunky, weird game that I wasn't sure I liked, but it kept sticking with me. And so I ended up getting it later and always loved it after that. I think the game just has so many different things you have to track that until you get to the end of the game, you're not really sure what you're doing or what the benefit is. And so it's it's not a great first play because of those. And then subsequent plays tend to be more fun. That's my experience anyway. So what's the interaction like here? So mostly the pressure when you're out on the board, you're competing for the resources that are limited every round. So you can get in there and steal resources before someone else does. You're, you're competing to solve those events and get the points before someone else does. There's a little bit of a benefit for getting two types of equipment that have a matching symbol on it because they're kind of a pair and they, they're worth more value later in the game. So if you see somebody's got you know a specific piece of equipment, you might steal it, steal the matching pair so they don't get the benefit. So there's a number of ways to interact. Even though it's thematic, it's very much Euro type of interaction. It's getting in people's way, getting, stopping them from getting the resources they need and potentially stealing some resources from them. But it's not, it's not much more heavy than that. It feels more heavy, though, I think, because of the theme on it. Yeah, I think you'd enjoy it, Adam. I think it's got enough interaction. I think you'd get a kick out of it. Yeah, I think I would really like it. I'd like to play it sometime. Okay, cool. So uh, we'd love to do that for sure. I think that's that's a game if Adam, if uh, Chris can pick, pack it into his luggage and bring it out to Palm Springs when we get together in October. That would that would be what I'd love to get together with I you guys. I can bring the extra big bags. I'd love to play it again. All right. All right, cool. All right, so that was our last game of Saturday night. We managed to get a few more games in on Sunday morning. Chris had to drive his wife to the airport that morning, so we got started around 9.30, 10 a.m., something like that. And the next game that we played, I had set up for him. Uh, his son wanted to play it as well, is Fossilus. So Fossilus was designed by David Diaz and published by Kids Table Board Games. Fossilus was a Kickstarter game that Chris backed, and I'll let him speak to why he was inspired to, to back it, but I got it all set up and ready to play when he got back from the airport. Fossilus is basically an, a game about digging for dinosaur bones. So there's this grid up on the table with a whole bunch of little plastic bones and skulls and, and tools kind of seated within this, this grid. So each grid uh, has a little compartment that's about an inch deep. And then on top of it, you put a bunch of tiles that are either stone or clay or dirt. And there's a series of actions you take during your turn. You have four action points, and you're either going to be moving one of these stones or clay or dirt. You can either push it to the side, you can push it off the board, in which case you get to keep it and some benefit that it gives you. But basically, you're trying to reveal these little compartments and then see if you can pull something out of there. And, and excavating that space and taking something out also costs an action point. But the whole reason you're doing that 
is that at the end of your turn, if you've got any dinosaur bones, you can claim a dinosaur card that has one of the matching bone requirements. And then you can continue over your subsequent turns, try to collect more bones and finish that dinosaur. And you're going to just basically get a certain amount of points for finishing a dinosaur. You'll get points for extra bones you have left over at the end of the game. And there's a few other things you can pick up. But that's the general gist of the game. It's essentially trying to get the right resources, taking the actions to get there, and turning them into dinosaur points. There's also a little bit of a set collection element at the end of the game. If you can have three of any particular characteristic, you get points. If you have the majority of a characteristic, you get points. And if you can get one of each type of characteristic by the end of the game, you get like 12 points. So you want to be watching for the types of dinosaurs you're collecting. But Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about Fossilis? You know, why did you pick it up and what did you think of this play? The thing that convinced me to pick it up and the thing that would convince me to come back to it many times, other than just the gameplay is the amazing table presence of this game. I, I don't think that I've played a game with this kind of table presence, probably at all. The, it might get a run for its money when Return to Dark Tower actually makes it out from the Kickstarter production. But right now, this one is top of the list. One thing that's absolutely incredible about it is this 3D board that you play on. As Tim mentioned, it's, it's full of stones and clay and sand and these big tiles. And they're big 3D tiles that stack on top of each other and make it, it feels like you're walking around an excavation site. There are pits full of tools and bones and various other things. There's an expansion that has a scorpion that's tracking you around the, the dig site. And all of this stuff adds up to just create one of the coolest-looking games I've seen in a long time. It actually reminds me a lot, for those who are old enough to remember... You know, growing up in the 80s, all those crazy board games that had, you know, the, the big pieces that did things like the Hungry Hungry Hippos and Don't Break the Ice. It's like taking one of those games with that kind of fun pieces and mechanisms in terms of like physical mechanisms and packing it full of hobby board game actual gameplay mechanisms. And I thought it was an absolute blast. And I know that this is one that was high on Adam's list for the Kickstarter and he was very excited about it. I know you got it, but I don't think we've ever talked about what your impression was after you actually got it. What did you think about the game in terms of the gameplay, Adam? The gameplay was, I don't know, it was mediocre. It felt a little, I, I wish it was more exciting because the presence is so amazing. And you're going and you're grabbing these little tweezers and you're going in there and you're actually physically excavating, excavating a, little, a little bone or a skull or whatever, like a backbone. So that part is just so cool and so neat, and the toy factor is off the hook. The gameplay was enough to keep me interested. It wasn't super compelling, is kind of how I felt about it. How the gameplay feel for you guys. So I'll speak to it, because I didn't know really anything at all about the game coming in, and, and I actually had a really fun time playing this game. There was some good competition. You know, We were fighting over the bones that were available in the spots. If there was a bone that came up, and I didn't have the plaster that I needed to actually pick it up, I was worried that Chris or Nathan would come in and steal it from me. And if they did that, I'd have to spend more action points to move another thing. And you could. You could mess with people. You could make a movement that was beneficial to you but push someone else off the board so it cost them an extra action point or covered over something that they were trying to get to. So there's some fun little puzzle of interaction there. But I, I dug it. I think, to me, it's uh, very much kind of... You dug it? <laughs> nice I think done, to me, <laughs> man, I wish I actually planned that. Right. Um, I think to me, it was it was very much like a parks weight game where it's not complicated to pick up resources and you're just trading those resources in for something. And this was almost exactly the same as that. And I like parks as a light, you know, medium weight game. 
that I could play with a family member and and still have a fun time playing it. And that's how this feels. Would I ever ask to play this game? No. Would I suggest to play it if my daughter and you know was over at Chris and Nathan's house and I was like, kids, you want to play a game? This would be one of my top choices of, of that type of weighted game to play with a family member. More than Marvel United by far, that's for sure. So I had fun with it. And just like Parks, I wouldn't ask to play it all the time. But when I've got some friends that like to go to this kind of weight of game, I'd absolutely play it again. I thought it was fun. It would always be competitive. I'd always be you know, trying to optimize and do the best things I could. Even though the actions aren't that complicated, I still had fun playing it. Tim, have you no soul, or what do you think about the table presence and the tiles and the, the physicality <laughs> of this game? Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. It, it, it was beautiful and fun to play with and fun to play with the little tiles and the, the stone and clay tiles are all really chunky and thick, and it was fun to grab one of those and put them in front of you and then spend them and grabbing the tweezers and pulling the bones out. Yeah, all that stuff was great. My point was just that even beyond all that, I I had a fun time with the gameplay. I was a glad glad we got a chance to play, and I'd be happy to play it again in the future. Yeah, I've got to disagree with you guys, I think mildly on one point. I, I would ask to play this one again, and the reason for that is because it didn't feel light in the sense of more geared toward children, but light in terms of the general, the gameplay. And I think the way, I, I think, Tim, you you made an apt comparison to Parks, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't call Parks a family game. I would no, play a game like no, Parks because I, I feel like something a little bit lighter or not. Yeah. Or, or maybe I just want to get the, I want to get a fun looking game out on the table because it feels good to, to play with those pieces. And I so I think I, I would ask to play that one. In fact, I think I wanted to play a second game, but we wanted to get something else on the table. And so we didn't get a chance to. But I, th- I think that it's it definitely stands up to, to repeat play and not just with uh, children. I, I agree with you. I don't think that when I say a family weight again, I don't think this is a kid's game. And that is where I might classify Marvel United and say that is more aimed at kids. And this is a family weight game and it can be played with younger family members. You know, over the weekend, if I was going to choose a game of that weight that I would pick, I would go to Calico, I think. Uh, there's nothing, nothing. I didn't. I don't have anything negative to say about it for what the game was trying to be. I think it. I think it hits it perfectly. One mechanism actually that I wanted to touch on before we move on, and I had forgotten about this, and it actually only hit me halfway through the game that this was really a part of the game. But there is an element of this that is very much like the memory game, and I realized this because as you're moving around the board, you're sliding tiles all over the place, and you always you're trying to get things underneath these tiles. And so as you're moving tiles around, you're having to remember, did I go in there before? Did Tim go in that spot? Did he move that tile? You know, what's under each of these tiles? And I thought that actually, it's not my favorite mechanism. I'm not, a, I'm not big on the memory game, but I like the fact that it adds something a little bit different and interesting that really kind of kept you on your toes. Yeah, and I'll also say that this game did not have a single route to victory. It actually had some interesting other ways to get points, to collect things moving tiles off the board actually in their own route you could trade them in for tools that were worth end game points you could trade them in for bones so you don't have to spend more time getting bones later i think that's what how i ended up winning the game i did a big focus on trading things in for those those resource and the tool cards and spending them and using them over the course of the game all right well i feel like fossilis is picking up momentum during the course of this little mini review right here now i'm pumped <laughs> up i want to go get it out and i want to play this thing it sounds freaking amazing all right, so after we finished the game of Fossilis, we thought we had a time for one more game this afternoon. I wanted to get in kind of like a nice, fun, midweight Euro game that would be good for two players. I suggested either Tunguru, Godspeed, or Viticulture. 
luckily Chris was open, and so I said, let's play Viticulture. Because I've actually never played Viticulture at two players. I've only played it at one and three, and um, really wanted to give it a shot. And I'm so glad I did. I had a great time playing this game. Chris, your number three win for the weekend, all Stonemeyer games, which is a funny coincidence there. But yeah, it was my first time playing two-player uh, Viticulture. Chris, what do you think of it? Have a, do you have a good time? I love this game. You know, it's funny. I, I was talking about Outlive before and how it's so not an elegant game, but it's an incredibly enjoyable game. This game is so incredibly elegant that it's hard not to love. I mean, the mechanisms, everything just flows so nicely together along with the theme that, I, I mean, I'm not even sure. I, I, I wish I had the words to explain the beauty of how this, this, how this game functions. And I love it from the first time I ever played it. And I think my wife and I had started four or five games of this and played for like a round or two before we finally managed to make it through a full game. And even then, I was like, this is so great. We just, we just never had the time to finish it. No, that's, yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great two-player game for me. And I, I, it actually worked better than I thought it was going to because I, I knew one of the things I really like about the three-player game of this is that there's those bonus spaces on the three to four-player spots on the worker placement tracks, uh, worker placement spaces. And I thought, hey, this is going to be really dry if you don't get the opportunity of rushing to those bonuses. But the fact is that the economy is just so tight when you only have one space in every area that it was still impactful to go there. It was still important. It mattered. So even though it didn't get the extra bonus, it was still like, hey, I just made that space. I'm cheering for myself right now because there's only one of those available. So the game worked great at two players, even better than I thought it was going to be. It was a tight game. We both had completely different strategies. You know, Chris had a nice lead on points, and then I started filling wine orders, and I thought I was going to win the game, and I kind of got stalled right at the end. I ran out of orders to fill, and I had to go searching for them, and then Chris hit a couple big ones and managed to push it over, actually hit the 25-point mark on it. So he had a big, epic win where I thought a turn earlier, if I could have closed off one more point, I would have ended the game and won, and I just couldn't get there. So it was a blast. I had a, I had a great time playing this game. Really fun. Now, Tim, did you miss the acclaimed critical expansion, the Tuscany expansion? <laughs> did, did, when you were playing this game, like, did you wish you had it with you, or was it just fine without it, or how did it hold up? It was just fine without it. I really liked the expansion, and I would have played it. If, if we had it there, I would have said, yes, let's play the expansion. But the game is great as is. It's great out of the box. I think the Tuscany expansion is fantastic, and I would never choose to play without it if I had it there. But it was still a, a super fun time, and I didn't feel like I lost enough from it to not be happy still playing it. So still good. still fun. Chris, any, anything else on Viticulture? No, just that I, it's, every time I play that game, I want to put it right back on the table after I finish and play it again. Yeah. It's that, it's that this is This is one of my top picks for TimCon. I want to do this four players with the Tuscany expansion with all four of you guys. You're all fans of the game. I think it's going to be a great play. I think it's going to be a really cool experience to play. So we, we, uh, we thought we were going to wrap up there, but we had about 30 more minutes. So we're like, let's get in one more last play. And we looked at Chris's shelf and looked at a couple of the later games that he had. And I'd never played the game Villainous, Dis uh, Disney Villainous by Ravensburger, North Ravensburger. America, I think. Yeah. So I'd never had a chance to play this. I'd heard about it for years. And I said, let's let's give it a shot. So we sat down. He taught it to me pretty quickly. I'm just going to jump in on this one. So if you don't know what Villainous is, it's basically a Disney-themed game where you're playing as the villains. And they're very asymmetric games. Each player has their own player board that represents locations, four locations in the movie that that villain's from. So in this case, I played Jafar from Aladdin. 
and Chris played the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland. So I had the Aladdin locations on my board. Chris had uh, locations from Alice in Wonderland. And you each have your own deck that is completely different cards just for your movie. But you have a, your ally deck, and then you have like the opposing deck, which is like the allies, you know, the, the good guys that you're playing against. And the gist of the game is that you have four action space, the four locations on your board. Each of them give you four actions available to take. They're very simple actions. Like one of them is just play a card from your hand. One of them is get more energy, which is the resource you use to, to play cards from your hand. So you'll take one of those spaces, and then on your next turn, you have to take a different one of those spaces. So it's kind of like the scythe player boards where you have to take a different action every turn. But other than that, there's not much restriction. The way that you interact with each other here, though, is kind of fun. There's two spaces on your board that give you the action to take your opponent's good guy deck and flip one of the cards over. And then that good guy does something negative to them. It, it may have an effect. It may put one of the allies in one of their locations, and it covers over two of the benefits of that action space. So you can kind of block up their space. And then you have to, if you want to compete against that ally or get that ally out of there, you have to play your own characters on your side of the player mat with higher strength, and then you can do an attack. So there's a little bit of fun player interaction. There's not too much agency. You know, when you're interacting with your opponent, you're basically just flipping a card over and doing what it says for the most part. But it does feel fun that you get to make the choice to say, like, I'm going to take an action because I want to screw with my opponent and, and make something bad happen to them. And then also do some things for myself as well. So that's the gist of the game. Chris, how much you've only played this a couple of times, right? Yeah, this was my second game. I played one game where I got roundly trounced by my wife the first time we played it. And then the game that you and I played where I think we were actually both pretty even on that. And so I've I've seen four different characters played now. And one of the nice things about this game, and I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, is that there are it feels like dozens of different characters you can play if you buy different expansions and the expansions you can actually, you don't even need the, there's no base game necessary. You can play just with expansions. They're so different from each other and they, they work so differently and they have such different goals. But at the same time, the connective tissue of the game is, is all the same. And one of the things that I really like about this and you had alluded to it, it's this interactive piece of it or the interaction between players and that they call them fate cards when you can play a fate card on another player so for example i played one of your fate cards and it was abu that comes down and snatches up some item from jafar and brings it away to a different location and then you have to go get it basically to get that item back and thematically that's a lot of fun it's fun seeing these characters it's sort of like with any of these properties, the the IPs that people love, like Disney characters, there's so much in here to really enjoy if you if you like those characters. But the nice thing about that is that it adds that interaction, and it adds it in kind of a take that way, but in a way that's so kind of mild and so expected, because that's one of the basic movements. So the basic movements is to play a fake card against your opponent. So it's not like I'm singling you out. I'm just doing the basic movements and it's going to give you a fate card. It's going to pull out a fun character, and it's going to have us interact a little bit without a whole lot of vindictive feel to it. I really enjoyed that part of it, and, and I'm curious what you thought about that, because I know that's one of the things that you do not enjoy about games when you have those big take-that moments. Yeah, it didn't feel like a mean game at all. It didn't feel like it was a take-that. 
moment at all. I knew it was just you taking an action on your board. Now, I did. Sometimes I would make the choice, like, I'm going to take that action because Chris feels like he's getting running away with his victory condition. So so I got to make a choice when that happened, but I didn't have any control really over what the negative effect was. And when you did it to me, I never felt bad that you were doing it because it was just like part of the, you know, it's just a, a main part of the game, like you said. So didn't have any problems with it at all. The internet, it was fun. It was always telling a story like that. The story you told her when, when I turned over a fake card and it was Alice and she came in and like totally clogged up. She, you, and you could give her an enlarging pill. So you would flip her sideways and she covered over three of the action options instead of two of them. But then if you played a card that would shrink her, you could make her smaller so that she only covered one of the actions. So very thematic. Each of them has very asymmetric win conditions. So like my condition was that I had to find the scarab in my deck and then the scarab would let me open, unlock the one location, the, the Cave of Wonders. And then once I had the Cave of Wonders open, I could find the magic lamp in my deck and then I could play it to the Cave of Wonders, at which point the genie would come out and I would have to get the Cave of Wonders back to the palace. So there, there was like this series of things that I had to do for my own personal mission that was very thematic. I was just telling a story there. And every once in a while, one of the good guy characters would come in and get in my way. And at the same time, I was keeping an eye on Chris's stuff that's going over there and making sure that the Queen of Hearts didn't get her full game of golf or whatever the heck she's playing over there. Croquet. Croquet. And I, I just had to block him occasionally too. So before I get my final thoughts here on this game, I'm curious, Adam, have you ever played Villainous? I have played Villainous. I've played a few times. Okay. So I'm going to tell my thoughts on it. I want to hear what you have to say about it because mm. I'm, I'm sitting there watching and your face, you don't seem too enthusiastic about it. But hmm. No, there's a couple points. I think, I think this game is a very interesting framework for what they can do with it. So I haven't, what I'm interested in is some of the expansions that they have now and it, to see if they iterate on it or what kind of different me- mechanics they're putting in there or their different goals for the different characters. Because there's so much you can do within this kind of framework. So, yeah, it's fine. I think the game's fine. Some of the characters are easier to win. The objectives are much easier to reach than others, which I'm fine with that. Just be aware. And so that's where I'm at. I think it's got a nice framework. I enjoyed it. You know, I haven't sought it out since then. Yeah, I would say the same. I probably wouldn't search it out. I thought it was a fun little, like, storytelling adventure that we went on. I had, If I had 20 minutes to play, I'd be happy to play this game again. It was fun. It'd be fun to explore some different characters and to see if I could make them work. You had a little bit of choice. You had four cards you could play on your turn. So you were kind of choosing the order things were going from. But for the most part, the game was kind of playing itself. This is a two-player game. I think if you're playing a three-player game, my understanding is that you know you could obviously be targeting other a specific person so whoever is closest to winning you can be hitting them with the fake card more so there could be a little bit more control over who's winning and how they're doing in a multiplayer game but that also would then start to feel a little more targeted a little bit more take that in that situation so i think it played fun as a two-player game i think is a just fun way to if you like the disney ip if you like these disney characters just to have a fun way to just kind of play around with them and have a little bit of game in there thought it was great I, I probably wouldn't go searching out either. If I was a if if I had a family member, if my wife was a huge Disney fan, I'd pick this up today. We would have a blast playing it back and forth. As is, you know, we're not. So it's it's just not something I'm going to search out. But I, I was glad I got a, finally got a chance to play it. I didn't regret that play of it at all. It was worth the time I put into it. And I'd be happy to play it again if someone was like, hey, we got 20, 25 minutes. Let's play another game of Villainous. And I, it would be fun. So that, that was my general feels on it. Hey, Adam, just out of curiosity, are you a Disney fan? I would say, I mean, moderately. I grew up watching the, the Little Mermaid and Aladdin, and all those all those movies were part of my childhood. 
you know, you know what? It's pretty fun seeing able to be these villains, Cruella de Vil, and play as their character and try to do these nefarious things. I I can get into it a little bit, sure. The reason I ask that is because both of you are kind of mediocre on on Disney. I'm a huge Disney fan. Highlight of my my childhood was the opportunities we took to go from Connecticut down to Disney World for a family vacation, and that's like still sticks in my mind as the highlights of my life. And so I've always been a big Disney fan. And I feel like you are a Disney fan and you are a gamer. It's hard to go wrong because if you love the IPs, you're going to love the characters regardless. And it's got enough meat behind it in terms of gameplay mechanisms to keep it interesting and make it fun, which is sort of the opposite. I don't mean to pile on Marvel United, but (laughs) there is, you know, you, you, you can love the Avengers and still go, wow, there's just not enough gameplay here to make this game worthwhile. Disney Villainous succeeds. And again, in a way that's in a very modest, you know, package of putting some great IPs, on a game that has really good gameplay. It's not the kind of thing I'm going to want to play every day. It's not the kind of thing I break out for a big game night for us, but it's a lot of fun to play and and it and it handles itself nicely. Yeah, let me just say that as a Disney IP game, something that's obviously targeted at Disney fans, most likely kind of targeted towards families, it is way more interesting than it has any right to be. Like as far as a game mechanisms and gameplay go, this game could have just been super boring roll a dice, move around a board, and then see what happens. Like, that's your traditional family type of IP game. And Prospero Hall was the design group that did this, and they've done several other games that we've talked about and really enjoyed. They did a great job of actually making some very accessible mechanisms, really taking advantage of the theme and telling a story with this IP, but still making it a fun enough game for a a hobby gamer where I would gladly go back to it. So... Honestly, I didn't know exactly what to expect with this, but I I think it beat my expectations. I liked it more than I thought I was going to. I had more fun with it and was more impressed with it than I thought I was going to. But I'm not the target audience for it, and so, you know, that's okay. It did what I think it intended to do in a really good way, and I think they should be really proud of. Apparently there's 20 different playable characters in Villainous now, depending on which expansions you have. Yeah, that's cool. And and I'll just say too, from a production perspective, I mean, I think the base game is like a 20 or $25 game. You can pick it up mm-hmm. at Target anywhere. Yep. You have six playable characters in there. The components, as far as like the individual player boards and the artwork on the cards and the layout on the cards, just beautiful. Great components, felt like high quality you pick up these little player mats and you unfold them and it's just like, wow, this is beautiful. Really, the only other component you have in there is that there's these little cardboard chits that you use to represent like your energy or your kind of your resource points. So those are boring. They're very typical cardboard pieces, nothing special. I saw you had them in like a container. Did that come did that come with the game, Chris? Yeah, that comes with the game. Okay. And then so, that is the only complaint that I have about the game is those crappy little cardboard yeah. circles, which I think they represent power. And it's like a little black circle with a gold line on it. And I'm not sh- sure how that represents power. But <laughs> yeah. you know, I think I think if I was playing this game more often, I would just find some random thing, like a For little sure. jewel or something that you know you could use in place of that just to make it more interesting. But that's the only complaint I have about the production. Yeah, I mean, for the price, the production's really nice. Again, everything they did here was great. I, I was impressed with it. I would happily play it again. Make a Pixar version of this, and I'd even be more excited because that's a you know exciting family IP for me to play with. They did make a Marvel version. Did you have any interest in that, Chris? I'm interested in all of them. I mean, I think they have about five different five different expansions, and 
20 or more total playable characters. And honestly, after this weekend of playing it and really actually kind of enjoying it more this time than I did the first time because I had a better handle on it the second time, I'm kind of interested to not only play the characters that are in the base game, but also look into some of the other the other variants in the expansions because, you know, like any Disney fan, I've got my favorite characters, I've got my favorite movies, and you know, that's it's almost like having a, it's like a collectible almost. Well, which which of the characters would you of the expansions that you're aware of? What's what's the one that you would pick up next? What's who's your favorite villain character that you'd have to pick up? Probably Gaston from Beauty and the Beast because he's especially good at expectorating. <laughs> nice, very nice. By the way, that Marvel one, I don't think that's compatible with the original game. It was oh, is it not? A, okay, it's a similar system, but I. I I heard somewhere, read somewhere that it's not compatible. So don't pick that one up trying to mix it. Oh, in. interesting. Okay. That's unfortunate, but that's true. I think I read that they might be coming out with the Star Wars version too. So that that would be fun. I'd be really interested in picking that up. I'm not sure if maybe someone was just kind of, you know, speculating on that or if that's a real thing. But I'd that, be shocked be if fun. they didn't. Yeah, right. I know. Exactly. All right. Well, so that was the last of the games we got in for this weekend. We just covered 11 unique games, some of them that were new to us, some that were very familiar. I hope you all had a really fun time listening to us chat about this. We had a fun time talking about it and definitely had a lot of fun playing these games and exploring them. So this will wrap up our episode today. If you enjoy what we had to say, feel free to reach out to us on social media and chat with us. Keep the conversation going. You can find us on Twitter at BG underscore hot takes. You can find us on Facebook at board game hot takes. All right. Until next week, take care, everybody. Have a good night, all.